Alternative legal billing. It's something that's been discussed a lot in the past year as clients are looking for ways to cut costs. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal, and today we're gathering some corporate counsel and law firm partners to discuss the topic. I'm here with my colleague, Rachel Tahorsky, who covers large law firms for the ABA Journal. Rachel, you've been doing a lot of reporting on this issue recently. Tell us what you found. Yes, I have. Um, Alternative billing, value-based billing, they seem to be the buzzwords that I'm hearing in all of my reporting. But in this talk among general counsels, law firms, lawyers, there seems to be a lot of finger-pointing, confusion over who should come up with the alternative billing models. Is it the responsibility of the clients to show the lawyers what they want? Is it the responsibility of the lawyers and the law firms? to come up with a plan and negotiate with clients on how they can do this type of work on an alternative fee basis. Case management, profits have all been concerns. There's a small group of very vocal general counsels that I've spoken to who are pushing very hard. We've got the ACC Value Challenge. We do. There are law firms who are embracing alternative billing wholeheartedly, but there still seems to be a majority who is unsure on how to handle or wield this type of billing. So I'm hoping through our discussion today we can address some of those concerns, questions, and find out whether or not they are true realities or things things firms need to think about, or maybe there's just an unnecessary fear to kind of delve into a different billing method. And with that, let's start with Buck DeWolf of General Electric. Tell us about the value-based billing uh, that you have come up with for your company. Well, my role at GE is to oversee the IP litigation, and that's primarily patent cases. And about three years ago, we went to a alternative billing-only approach to our patent cases. We have a preferred provider program with 10 firms, and we usually have about 30 cases at any given time at the company. And all of those cases are now either flat fee or fee cap or some other approach that the, the firm may suggest they want to use. And it has been very successful. Uh, I think the firms like it, and we certainly uh, like it for a whole host of reasons. It's not really intended to be a discount program. It's more of a budget discipline program. It's worked well. Tell us how uh, your plan works at Cisco, Mark. Thanks, Stephanie. You know, I think I think Buck hit just the right note there, and this is really not about uh, cutting costs in the sense of figuring out how to take money out of my friends at law firms' pockets so that I can have more in my own. It's about figuring out how to do the job more efficiently, how to align the interests and cost expectations between clients and lawyers better. And when the job is done more efficiently or with maximum efficiency, the natural result will be not only a potential reduction in my costs, but also a protection of the profitability of the law firms. And I think it's it's vitally important that people not look at this as a way to, to somehow beggar the folks in law firms who folk, people like Buck and I who are in-house are vitally dependent on to, to do our jobs properly. Uh, like Buck, in patent cases, uh, we routinely now have, uh, and in all litigation actually, routinely have fixed our costs at least element by element in the case. Sometimes at the outset you can't predict uh, what will happen because you don't know if you're going to go to trial. You think you have a good chance of winning on a summary judgment motion, but if you don't, you'll have a huge amount of potential additional costs. What we do is try to break it down segment by segment, fix a cost through the motions with some very big incentives to win. It also helps the law firms uh, determine how serious they are in their assessment of the likelihood of winning there. 
with uh, holding back some of the uh, traditional uh, hour-based pay and then bonuses if that's achieved, and then a willingness on our part to bid the case out again, even though that may involve some retraining, uh, if we need to, to help keep competition and lower costs uh, in, uh, in the uh, out portions of the case. We also have uh, done similar fixed fees in uh, merger and acquisition work and in all our corporate secretarial work, and I can circle back to that later if you like. I think we're going to have you touch back on that, but just to switch gears for a moment and go over to the law firm side, I'd like Paul Williams perhaps to tell us a little bit about their arrangement with Tyco, where you handle the entire national docket of products liability cases for Tyco. And what I specifically find interesting in our discussions on this is in talking to lawyers, one of the biggest concerns that come up is, I do specialized work. I don't do commoditized work. So you can't really put a fixed fee or an alt arrangement on the type of work that I do. You have to be very familiar with it. And I know when Shakardi put in an, an offer, a negotiation to get the Tyco work, you hadn't done any alternative billing. And this was something that was totally new. So if you could perhaps maybe tell us how you even came up with, you know, what was going to be the arrangement and address some of those fears and concerns. Thank you. This is Paul. I can try and do that. We've been doing the uh, product liability docket for Tyco since 2004. Back at that time, they started a request for proposal process, and we were one of about 20 other firms who participated in coming up with creative ideas as to how to address the company's desire to achieve uh, some greater uh, certainty of their costs and their legal spend, as well as predictability uh, about how the docket was going to be handled. And we came up with what we call the Tyco model now uh, with a focus, heavy focus on efficient and effective processes as well as staffing that meets the specific objectives of the client uh, in this type of a program. Uh, the focus is obviously because it's a fixed fee type program, not on the billable hour per se, but rather on the more strategic objectives of the type of case or the docket of cases as it was in Tyco's situation. They put out their entire docket for product liability, which ranges from traditional manufacturer-type products to another part of their docket, which is really more in the nature of general negligence cases, breach of contract cases, um, not repetitive litigation, if you will, but rather a huge collection of one-off cases. And, and through that uh, alignment of interest, focusing on the strategic objectives of the case or cases or the type of docket, we're able to identify mutual goals that allowed them to accomplish their uh, predictability, cost certainty, and well as some ultimate cost savings, both from a legal spend, indemnity spend, and overall insurance uh, risk management spend, as well as providing a profit opportunity and a good work opportunity for the outside firm. Can I ask, uh, if I may interject, has it hurt you in any way cost-wise? It hasn't. It hasn't. The earlier years, of course, were more learning years, uh, but here we are six years into it and much more uh, adept at budgeting more appropriately. As Mr. DeWolf mentioned, budget discipline is key, and with good budget discipline and staffing management, we're able to provide the specialized needs for the different types of cases, even within the flat fee structure, at a profit. I'd like to interject for a second, if I may. I believe we now have Emery Harlan on the line. Hello, Emery. Are you there? Hello. Hello. We're doing great. Um, Emery is a partner at Wisconsin's Gonzalez, Sagio, and Harlan, and he is also the co-founder and current board chair of the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms. Thank you for joining us, Emery. And 
Now, after we've heard from some of the in-house lawyers, I would like to open it up uh, to some of our private practice lawyers. MC, do you have questions for them, thoughts? Um, well, actually, I had a question, uh, further questions with regard to um, Paul Williams' arrangements. And in terms of, and also maybe Buck DeWolf's comments about budgeting discipline, in order to have good budgeting discipline, you need good information in order to kind of figure out um, what the what the most fair calculation for a flat fee, for example, is. And uh, how do you gather that information? Uh, this oh, is Paul. I guess I'll, I'll jump in quickly first. At, at the outset of the request for proposal process, Tyco was able to provide us some historical information as to how they had handled their cases. They handled their cases with over 160 law firms at the time, which were then consolidated to ours which made the forecasting of what the savings of the better, more efficient processes and fewer firms' involvement would be. But over time, we collect uh, and, and capture data as the program goes along, which allows us to fairly easily and, and to the detail, if you will, uh, track certain expense items, uh, certain uh, types of ex experience or specialty expertise that's required to handle certain types of cases, and, and going forward, able to look at the upcoming docket for the upcoming contract term and forecast fairly efficiently uh, and, and confidently what the uh, necessary expenditures are going to be for the upcoming year, which allows both us and Tyco good confidence that our budget numbers and our agreed-upon pricing terms are going to hit fairly on all fours uh, as projected based on that experience. It's a lot of sense to have the collaboration of information on both sides we as an appellate firm are, are starting to, to do some of these arrangements as well for stage-by-stage stage kind of things for preliminary evaluations and post-trial motions and various aspects of the case. But right now we have our own firm's historical data, but not necessarily data from particular clients, and that, that might also help fill in, fill in some of the gaps and enhance the partnership and collaboration that I think these alternative billing arrangements allow for. I was just, Mrs. Buck, I was just going to add one thing. I think what Paul said is exactly right. And in our experience, our movement to this approach really coincided with law firms getting more sophisticated about tracking their own expenses and fees over the life of cases. And for GE, the vast majority of our patent cases are located in the Eastern District of Texas, and they are brought by non-practicing entities and those cases tend to be predictable, and if you've done enough of them, the law firms have, they have a good sense of what these cases are going to cost, both on a fee and a cost uh, sense, because they've been tracking it for a while now. And as part of our approach, we now require them to also cover our expert fees, our expert costs, so that, that you know, they're closest to the experts. They have a much better sense of what they're doing on a daily basis, and they're able to manage that relationship better than we would. And so we throw everything in there now, and then they, they know that they need to manage that budget. They need to manage the expert like we're managing them to make sure that everybody is, is uh, handling the costs in an efficient way. Um, Emery, I have a question for you at your firm. Do you guys, have you tried alternative billing? And if so, how does it work? Yeah, we have, uh, you know, probably I happen to be an employment lawyer. That's my area. And um, we represent a major um, retailer. And probably about two years ago, they went through an RFP process. And one of the things that they wanted to focus on is how they handle administrative charges, which had traditionally been kind of on the hourly 
basis. And so they provided a lot of data through the RFP process and basically uh, demanded that the firms come up with kind of a task-based billing approach, um, you know, where you would bill on a flat fee for certain phases of the administrative process. So, for instance, there's a uh, rate that we charge or a set amount of fees that we charge for handling a position statement. There's another um, set of fees that we charge to the extent there's a mediation or some type of um, fact-finding conference. So, and we've had a number of clients go through a similar process, um, and it's required us to be pretty adept at trying to understand what our costs are and be able to um, provide a um, flat fee arrangement that makes sense for both parties. To kind of build on Emery's point, and I know Paul had also talked about, Tyco had put out a request for RFPs, and you, you responded with what you, know, you thought the best alternative arrangement would be. I'm curious, and I'd like to pose this question to the GCs first, and then perhaps for follow-up from the private practitioners, who should initiate the alternative fee shift? And I ask this because while I've spoken to some GCs, you know, I've, I've spoken to Mark, and we've written about Cisco at length, who's very vocal about this, I have attended other roundtable discussions with general counsels. I know Leah Cooper mentioned in Georgetown two weeks ago that there's just so much on the plate of a GC right now. The role is constantly evolving, changing. You have a lot of tasks that aren't even within the legal department that you're addressing within the C-suite now. Is it, should it be the clients who push and request from the law firms that they want to do this? Should it be the law firms who say, look, we've done our homework, we've looked at this, and we think that this arrangement would be even better for you than what we're doing right now. And I, I've spoken to lawyers at law firms who say, we want it, but our clients, we can't, get them, we can't get them to come on board with it, even if it's saving them money. And so I'd like to, again, if Buck and Mark want to address it first on, you know, who's going to be the one or who should be the one initiating this type of a change, a shift, and then perhaps some of the private practitioners can follow up on their experiences. Why don't you go ahead, Mark? Thanks. I, I think it needs to come from the client. I don't think this is field of dreams where if the law firms build it, uh, clients will come. I think there are a lot of uh, structural and historical reasons for conservatism on both uh, the side of the law firm and on the side of clients. Uh, so I think uh, a law firm indicating they're willing to and suggesting to clients there may be ways to organize things more efficiently, seeding the ideas, and then having the client uh, develop the particular program is probably the right way to go. I think in my own shoes where we have a very large portion of our spend on a fixed fee basis, uh, I think it would be uh, uh, difficult for someone to come in and just propose a certain way of doing things without knowing where we were coming from first. But I'm certainly uh, receptive to people saying, why don't we think about these three or four approaches, see if any of them will work in a way to drive greater efficiency and better results. I, I agree with that in the sense that, that Mark has put it, you really, it really has to be something the client wants and, and, and it is tailored to the client's needs. But I would also say that the law firms have to be comfortable with this. And one thing that we have made an effort at GE to do is we're not going to ram this down the throat of any firm. It's, it's really their choice to, to get involved. If they're not willing to do it, we're not likely to give them the case, but we're not going to impose this upon them. And there's some firms that's just not their way of doing business, and they've walked away from our preferred provider program as a result. And the other thing is, once you get experience in this, it is not 
just beneficial for the firm. I mean, I'll briefly explain it. There are really basically three relationships that are directly impacted by this. One is the relationship between the firm and the client because everybody's now sort of pulling in the same direction, and there's no suspicion that somehow people are churning the, the, the case and trying to get more billable time on it because everybody knows what you're going to get paid at the end of the day, and so there's no upside to doing that. And the other relationship internally at the firm is helped because we're not, at least at GE, we're not going to henpeck the firm now in terms of how they staff a case. If they want to have a $800 an hour lawyer do doc review and that person is, is up to speed on the case, that's fine with us because we're not going to pay any more for that. And it allows the firm to be more flexible on their staffing, assuming that everybody's qualified. And in the last relationship, and to, to GE, it's really the most important, it's the relationship between the, the general counsel or the head litigator who's managing the case and the finance department. And, and that relationship is enhanced because of the certainty associated with this. You can now go to your finance people and say, this case will cost no more than X. Unless something very weird happens, this case will cost no more than X. And I know what it's going to cost every month, max amount at least. And then you've got that baked into the budget. And it creates a much better relationship between finance and the lawyer. And at the end of the day, in many ways, the firm's client is the in-house lawyer. And this makes the in-house lawyer's life a heck of a lot better. Buck, I have a question for you. This is Stephanie Ward. How many firms have walked away because they didn't want to participate approximately? Oh, I think, you know, it's interesting. The, the economy has driven a lot of this. I think initially when we started doing this three years ago, firms were sort of skeptical and said, well, we do, we're willing to talk about this, and they weren't very enthusiastic about it. But as the economy has, has weakened, uh, a lot of firms have stepped up and, and said that we'll do, we'll do whatever you want to do and, and, and we'll be flexible in terms of how we structure it. So we've had a few firms walk away, not a lot, but I think that's driven. I think had the economy not uh, had its, its issues, I think we would have had less uh, adoption. Okay. And uh, Pat Doherty at Foley, what are your thoughts on this? We, we've tried to address this um, through, uh, by creating a budget management tool. Uh, we think we have a leading IT practice, and we turned our, our best IT lawyers on our own systems, and we also invested about a million dollars in software development to come up with a web-based budget management tool um, uh, that allows uh, 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 corporate counsel as well as uh, uh, our engagement teams to see to get a real-time report on what's going on on a matter or on an entire portfolio of matters. And we did this because extensive client interviews taught us that uh, uh, that uh, uh, our clients wanted predictability uh, with a focus on budgeting. Uh, so what you get is our graphs showing uh, the cumulative budget, percentage of completion, a mix of the professionals, and this allows for timely reaction if you think things are, are getting out of line. Now, of course, to the extent you go to fixed fees, transparency, I think, doesn't matter all that much, right? Because I'm interested in comments from the corporate counsel online, because if it's fixed fees, then you don't really have to monitor what your outside counsel are doing all that much. We find this tool more useful for people who do want predictability and uh, uh, accountability uh, and a focus on budgeting uh, without going all the way to fixed fees. Now, we'll do fixed fees too, um, uh, but it has to be based on the same sort of considerations Mr. Williams was talking about early, very thorough information download at the outset, um, 
and uh, a portfolio of matters is preferable to one or two because we can diversify the risk of loss on one or two if the more matters we have. And also, um, hasn't been mentioned yet, but I'll mention it now, the duration of the engagement matters. And here, actually, shorter is probably better than longer because it allows us to minimize the risk of getting into a uh, a uh, an engagement that is in fact unprofitable uh, if, if we feel we're really getting killed on a matter uh, we can get out of out of it after a period of time uh, and I, I, I think the, the the companies tend to look at it that way too because uh, that can go in either direction but these are some of the ways we've tried to ad- address it um, this is a and I agree the the economy the, the great recession has has uh, has driven this to a very large degree because there's a su- supply-demand imbalance for legal services, uh, and and um, uh, this is how it's being addressed through the, through this uh, uh, negotiation and auction process. I have a question that I got from Max Miller. He is the director of Pitt Law's new Innovative Practice Institute. And he wants to know, if flat rate billing protocol ends up pushing work down to lawyers with less experience, does, excuse me, does, does flat rate billing protocol wind up pushing work down to lawyers with less experience or give more senior lawyers the freedom to practice in their specialty without the pressure of billing at their standard rate? And I think I'm going to pose that question first to Emery. Yeah, I, okay. I think that there is a risk of that, um, but I, I think obviously <laughs> – at the uh, end of the day, the firms, uh, if they want to stay in business, are going to put the lawyers um, on the matters that are most capable of delivering the service that the client wants. So I'm sure that there will be a temptation by some firms to, to do that, but that will be, I think, tempered in, in a lot of ways by the realities that if they want to retain the relationship and grow it, then they've got to be able to deliver the results that the the companies and the clients are looking for. Perhaps if um, uh, Paul wants to jump in um, or if MC want to jump in, in your alternative billing arrangements, have you noticed your work being pushed down or have it allowed you greater freedom to do the work necessary for your client without the pressures of billing out at what would have been your hourly rate, keeping an eye on the clock and the time? MC, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, We haven't necessarily change the way we staff a case if it is an alternative billing arrangement or or if it's an hourly arrangement. We always staff our cases with two lawyers, one who's a lead and one who supervises, sometimes more if it's a really very large, you know, complex appeal. But that's really the framework. And so there's always a more senior partner on a case. So that hasn't that hasn't changed, and I don't think that it's been affected in the cases where we have had some alternative arrangements for segments of an appeal. That hasn't changed our minds about who we think would be the best person for a particular matter. This is Paul, and with our Tyco program, we have modified how we approach staffing from the standpoint of bringing in a lot more lateral, more experienced attorneys, 8, 10, 12, 15-year lawyers who are not on the traditional associate or partnership track, which gives us a lot more internal economic flexibility, but assures the client the type of experience that they're going to want handling their cases. So while one might at first blush think under a flat fee, oh, we have to push it down to the lowest billing denominator, here we focus on pushing it to the right experience level to most efficiently and effectively handle that matter. 
that gives those who have some incredible expertise that have a smaller role in a particular case who might have an exorbitant billing rate relative to everyone else billing in the program, they can come in and handle that piece that they need to handle. And the bulk of the work is then done by fairly experienced, uh, I call uh, more senior attorneys, even though from an internal economic standpoint, they are at a lower cost to the firm. It gives us the ability to provide the experience without pricing ourselves from an overhead standpoint out of the profitability market for the flat fee program. Because that's our experience at Cisco as well with the way with the way our outside counsel is staffed. Uh, first of all, we often find cases where work was being done by uh, lawyers who uh, are capable of commanding a, a large billable hour, if that's the basis, or otherwise providing high-value services that were doing work that was uh, not very valuable. And in a fixed-fee environment, the firm comes to us and says, gee, some of these things maybe you'd want to find other people to take on who are lower cost. We help drive our costs down by that kind of cooperation. We do find firms uh, tending to look to hire staff attorneys. We actually encourage that uh, for the same reasons that have just been cited. You get people with quite a few years of experience at a lower cost than, than partnership track and who actually very well know what they're doing. Uh, we haven't found any uh, dumbing down of the work, any loss of uh, senior attention to the projects where we need it. Uh, so all in all, from a staffing standpoint, it's been a great success. And I think, Pat, uh, fully you wanted to jump in too? Yes. Uh, again, I'm agreeing, uh, agreeing with Paul, and I'm glad Cisco has had the same experience. Uh, it is hardly ever the case that sending the work to the lowest uh, possible level uh, will achieve the best result economically or professionally. Uh, you need more experience than that. But there's always a sweet spot, uh, usually after two, three, four years of experience as a lawyer, as an associate, and and uh, likewise for partners, there's a sweet spot where you would try to push it. Um, uh, a, a, couple, a couple further thoughts. One is that uh, our budget management tool is an excellent way of policing this uh, because if everyone can look at uh, a graph that shows the mix of professionals on a matter, if it's becoming too bottom heavy, that will be apparent right away and someone can start asking questions about that. The client can ask questions about that. Or likewise, if it's, if it's too top-heavy, that, that will become apparent uh, quickly, too. The key thing about all these arrangements is that everyone has to add value. Uh, there is just no room on any engagement uh, that is uh, set up this way for someone to just lurk on the file, if you will, and uh, uh, and, and, and do make work or uh, uh, and not contribute value or very little value. That it, it just won't work. It's uneconomical, and it, it really drives efficiency uh, in the engagement. This is and Buck. Let me just from GE. Let me just make one quick comment. Yes, please do. It's from a slightly different perspective. Because we have a preferred provider program, I think we we know our teams at the firms very well by now. But also one of the the, the deals we have with these firms is that we understand that young lawyers need experience. And so in return for agreeing to, to handle these matters in alternative ways, we're willing to allow more junior lawyers to work on them, particularly on the offensive patent cases that are, in many cases, full contingency. We know that in order for the firm to take it on, they have to, to make some ec economic calculations. And in return for that, we're letting them put more junior lawyers on 
give them some good experience that's helping us to build a team for the future. And um, it's worked very, very well because these, these young lawyers, while not as experienced, are hugely enthusiastic about this stuff. And so we, we get really good work out of them. One of the things I noticed, uh, I don't know if everyone saw uh, Lori Robertson's uh, article in, in um, I think it's the Corporate Legal Times, um, where she raised the question of, of how these kind of alternative feed convergence type efforts are um, affecting uh, a company's commitment to work with, um, you know, women and minority firms, which tend to be smaller and don't tend to have kind of the longstanding um, history with a lot of the companies. And I, I would throw that out there for the, the in-house folks to address. Well, this is Bucket G. I don't want to overstay my welcome here, but we have a very strong commitment to using firms with diverse lawyers and going to uh, the point that um, was made by Pat about having good software. One of the things we've instituted at GE is software on the billing side that we can now not only track who the diverse lawyers are, but we also can confirm that they're actually billing time to the matter. And so we are very careful about tracking this. And we have also, because we have uh, repeat cases, we can go to firms that are smaller because we know them well. And as a result, we have several minority and women-run uh, firms that handle a lot of our cases that we have long-term relationships with. This is Dory again. Uh, let me suggest another way that many corporate counsel can get even better pricing than they already are. And I'm not, uh, I don't mean to direct this at GE or anyone on this phone, actually, but that is uh, this. And I, I, I notice this a lot from our particular market position at Foley and Lardner. It seems that there are some kinds of work that where corporate counsel really feel uh, driven, almost compelled to go to elite Wall Street law firms uh, or others in you know what perhaps might be the top 20, something like that, and and we we have seen circumstances where there is perhaps less uh, price sensitive price sensitivity there. Uh, not ensure why that is the case. Uh, it might be uh, is sometimes suggested uh, that corporate counsel will make what they consider a safe choice for an, for a very important matter. Uh, my suggestion would be that if you take a little bit more risk, you could probably get, in many cases, the same uh, quality of service, perhaps even a greater degree of devotion and loyalty um, by seeking out a team of lawyers uh, you know, uh, out, outside the prestige elite of the Wall Street law firm, uh, where prices are, uh, frankly, uh, a good bit lower. Um, just a thought. And, and again, I don't mean to suggest that people on this call are not doing that, uh, but we uh, we know clients who uh, who do sometimes behave that way. I think Rachel has a question about profit. I do, and this kind of does play off of um, Pat's statement just now. Because we live in, you know, the AMLA 100 profits per partner world as it is where everyone's watching to see what firms are going to post um, and GCs are in the position where they're trying to save money, you know, their shareholders obviously have a stake in what's, what the legal spend is. Are these alternative billing arrangements, from what I've seen, it's, it's a way for clients to try to cut down costs, increase value, and from a lot of the law firms that I've spoken to, it's something that they begrudgingly agree to because they know they need to in order to keep their clients happy, 
but is it something that a law firm can embrace and also make more money? Is it a matter of just sustaining your profits or can firms be more profitable while you know, charging less and lowering the legal spend of their clients? Or is that just an impossible dream? Well, no, th- clearly uh, you can do this and, and make money doing it. There are law firms uh, that have uh, gone to fixed pricing and alternative billing uh, well in advance of the Great Recession. Bartlett Beck, for example, comes to mind, a very fine litigation firm based in Chicago that I think does alternative billing on pretty much all of its matters. And uh, But the folks in that firm will tell you, you know, the fact that we do fixed pricing doesn't mean we're cheap. Uh, so you know you, you it, it may or may not be uh something that a client wanted to pay for on a particular matter but if if you can manage your costs well um this can be uh very profitable for the law firm and and that is why we're we're embracing it and i know other law firms are are as well we would just like it to cover a greater variety of matters we'd like it to cover essentially a company's entire portfolio of legal matters and not only a slice of it. This is Paul with Shook Hardy. We've had great success with the alternative fee arrangements. Right now, our chairman announced about a month ago that about 29% of our overall revenue right now is coming in the form of alternative fee arrangements. The Tyco model began back in 2004, but we have had other iterations prior to that and many, many since then that drive uh, further considerations by, for many of the reasons that the, the in-house counsel here have expressed today, as well as ideas coming from uh, law firms and others as to how to make the practice more efficient and effective. And I agree with, uh, that you can make a profit, and, and especially in those scenarios where you're able to pick up an entire docket for a company, you can have a dramatic impact on a company's ultimate bottom line. Whether the original uh, genesis of the idea of going to alternative fee arrangements was simply to have more budget discipline, more certainty or predictability in what their spend was going to be, the inevitable effect, at least with our uh, relationship with Tyco, has been a substantial impact on their bottom line uh, for some of the reasons I mentioned, including the actual spend as well as their indemnities and insurance reserve uh, processes. Uh, I think that's a great example. This is Mark from Cisco. I think it's a great example of how what we're really looking at here is a is a win-win. Uh, we have structured a, a process for doing our corporate secretarial work globally with the Oracle Law Firm. We have subsidiaries in over 100 countries, more than 350 in the corporate family. And uh, in the past, we've had a real variety of firms around the world handling it. Those firms that had multiple offices tended to view it as a profit center. You know, if we're charging $4,000 this year to do it in Romania, how can we be charging 5000 next year uh, was the basic model. Uh, and in the place where there wasn't multiple firms handling it, we were spending a lot of administrative expense coordinating it and following up. And what we put out an RFP for was to ask someone to develop an automated tool that would templatize the work that needed to be done for each of the, for the annual filings in each country and to uh, then go out and build a network of firms that could be used for multiple similar projects. And ORC won the bid. They did it by committing to doing the entire global system for 80% of what we'd been paying over the previous five years and to reduce the amount they were charging us by 5% in each year over the next five years. Now, they had to make a significant investment in building the tools and starting to build a network of firms using a lot of the firms that we'd been using historically uh, as well. 
but uh, there have been two results. First is that they now have 12 new clients signed up to use the tool. So it's not just Cisco. They're amortizing that cost over a number of clients. And second, the partner who's in charge of it, a very creative uh, guy named John Ocker, uh, came to me and said, you know, it's made us incredibly efficient and aggressive in dealing with these law firms because now we're going back to each of them and asking them how they can lower the costs each year which isn't the model you'd see with a firm that had offices in, in multiple countries and didn't have those incentives. So uh, I feel that we've created a great client development opportunity for Oric, chance for them to make money, as well as reduced our cost. And it's, it's been really a wonderful system and follows right along the economic logic that you were laying out a second ago, Pat. Well, this forces your outside counsel to be much more business-like than in the past, and and it can be win-win. There are losers in this scenario, too. The losers are the lawyers who won't adapt, either because they can't or they won't. They won't learn the necessary skills or deploy them. Uh, that, that's, that's whose expense it will come at. But that's true of every profession and industry as it matures over time. The legal profession has come into this very late, actually. Other professional service uh, uh, industries have gotten to what we would call alternative billing much quicker and earlier in their, uh, in their uh, time span than we have. This is Buck from GE. I've got sort of a similar story to Mark's that, that gives a little bit of texture to the, to the profit opportunity here. We have as I said, a preferred provider program, and one of our firms handled the case for us a few years ago, and it was an incredibly expensive patent case. This was before we went to the alternative billing approach. And we got a good result. We paid a ton of money for it. And going forward now, other businesses within GE are afraid to use this firm because they were so expensive and so are much more comfortable going to firms that are willing to do this alternative flat bill flat fee billing approach or fee cap approach. And so while they may have gotten a lot of money on this one particular case, it, it soured everybody going forward. And so that's resulted in more business for the firms that are willing to be more disciplined about their budgeting. And so they get more business. At the end of the day, they end up being better off. I'd like to circle back to the second point that Pat, the partner at Foley, made about if GCs are willing to take on more risk and perhaps not go to their top five firms that they had repeatedly gone to, perhaps do charge at a higher rate, and are more willing to kind of expand down the line, um, maybe boutiques, firms that aren't as um, well-known or smaller firms, that maybe they are going to find that value there and still get the same caliber of work, and perhaps that might even breed more loyalty. Um, MC, do you, have you seen that different types of work have come your way, given the economy and and what's going on, and do you have any thoughts on that? And then perhaps if the GCs want to follow up? Uh, sure. Um, we we always have kind of a, a perverse um, relationship to the economy in that when the economy is not doing well, we're quite busy because people tend to want to appeal rather than just pay judgments, that they're more willing to actually take the risk on an appeal than they might be otherwise. So. Um, we, in general, tend to do well during these kind of timeframes, and, and we are doing well. But I have noticed over the past, I'd say, decade or so, a change in um, the perception of our value and our relationships with counsel and our reputations. We tend to um, team up with uh, trial lawyers and obviously folks at other firms because all we do is appeals. 
And there's been a growing interest and need for specialists in appeals, and uh, we have that. And so we've actually seen a growth in our partnerships with trial lawyers as well as um, in-house counsel and an expansion into some of even more of those about the company cases to help enhance uh, the likelihood of success. So we have seen an expansion, but I can't say that it's necessarily related to um, the economic times or the types of billing that's involved, although we tend to overall be of more value in terms of expertise and our and our just our regular billing rates compared to a very large firm. So I'm sure that plays into it. But it's been a trend that's been going on for the for the past decade. And Mark Mark and Buck, do you have any response on Pat's comments about GCs taking on a little bit more risk or the types of loyalty and relationships that you're building with your law firms with these types through these types of arrangements? Well you have to not have uh a win-lose uh, and a gotcha game mentality. Uh, the level of trust that's required for alternative billing to work is is higher, actually, in that people are taking risk, not just the, the law firm, but the general counsel as well. And uh, you have to have the flexibility to deal with the fact that things unfold sometimes in a way that was unanticipated. And both parties have to feel that when that happens, things will be adjusted in a way that's fair, makes sense, and is uh, reflectful of mutual respect and the commitment to a long-term engagement. Yeah, and this is Buck. I agree completely with that. It's really about relationships. And so if you've been doing this sort of work for a while, you don't have to go to the marquee name. If you know particularly good lawyers in small firms that are very sophisticated about, about your company and about your matters, that's a fabulous relationship. And, and, and those are the kinds of firms that handle most of our cases. I have a question for everyone. This is Stephanie Ward. Um, oftentimes, law firms find trends in business and follow them. Like, for instance, one year, everyone took the ampersands out of their names or decide just to go by one name. And I'm curious about this idea of alternative billing. Admittedly, it's been done for years, but we haven't seen it much in the corporate sector. To all of you, is this another trend in the law firm world, or is it here to stay? Um, Mark, what do you think? Well, I was in a panel with Eric Press from American Lawyer a few weeks ago, and uh I, I don't know if he's a competition and shouldn't be quoting him, but he was describing a dinner with two partners in uh, law firms, one of whom uh, said, all this is just a fad because of the downturn, it will go away. Another said, no, it's a fundamental shift. It will, uh, it will, it will stay. And he said to himself, you know, both of these guys have houses in Nantucket and I live in Brooklyn Heights, so who's the smart guy? Uh, I think that uh, I think personally that uh, there are some fundamental shifts in the way people are buying things, that the revolution that affects knowledge-based industries generally, whether it's consulting or accountancy, uh, or that technological revolution that's changing the way people access and use information uh, is ultimately going to transform the way legal services get delivered, what the role of professionals is versus the the role of automated tools and of people who aren't professional but are good at, uh, as lawyers, but are good at moving information around. And what we've seen is an acceleration of that changeover that will occur because of technological change, and I, I think this will, will continue uh, by 
general counsel under more and more pressure to act as other corporate managers too with predictability, uh, budgets, and uh, having to show evidence of productivity improvements from year to year. And that will uh, give a great opportunity to the law firms that are creative in responding to those pressures. And Emery, what do you think? Yeah, my sense is that I think it's here to stay. I don't think it's, uh, you know, a fad. I think this is going to be a fundamental shift uh, in the legal profession. And, um, you know, I would be very surprised if once the economy improves, um, you see this go away. Doherty again, and I agree. I, I um, and you'll notice, uh, you know, Paul's had this relationship with Tyco for six years now. That was obviously not uh, initiated by the recession that uh, began in 2007, 2008. Uh, uh, I, from my point of view, this is part of the natural maturation of the legal services industry, and is is uh, somewhat overdue. The pressures uh, and incentives. Uh, that uh, uh, Mark was talking about are very real uh, on chief legal officers. Uh, what we what we see now is that, that it's it's happening quickly, and the the Great Recession has driven it. But it would have happened anyway, um, uh, and uh, as it has in other service industries. And uh, I think that lawyers who think it's a fad or hope it's a fad and are just kind of uh, 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 saying a prayer along those lines, these people are wrong, and they either have to change, or I hope they're close to retirement because they will soon be retired if they don't change. This is Paul. I agree, Pat. Well said. I think as a practical matter, uh, whether uh, an in-house counsel is on the on the front edge of this and is bringing their company into this notion now, or a few years ago, or in the year to come, or ten years from now, I think the more involvement there is by by corporations and by law firms in doing these alternative fee arrangements, the greater focus will be spent on how can I get the most efficient, effective use of my outside services? Who would want to spend more money than would otherwise be necessary? Who wouldn't reward an efficient, effective use of shareholders' money? And that all means more money for the shareholders, more money for the company, and ultimately more opportunities for the law firms. So for those who are interested in taking that to that next innovative step, I agree with Pat that I, I think there's going to be more and more opportunities for those who are creative enough to be in the game now and get in the game soon in order to advance the interests which are aligned between the companies and the law firms to make this process work, to make a, a win-win for everybody. This is Buck from GE, and I, I think like Paul and his Tyco relationship, we started doing this before the economy dipped, so I think that's proof that this is a longer-term trend. Now, the only question I would ask, though, in that context is, <clears throat> is this really apply to all buyers of legal services? Because obviously, Tyco and Cisco and GE, we're, we have a lot of purchasing power, and so we can drive this relationship. And I'm not sure that'll be true for the smaller um, buyers of legal services, whether they'll have that sort of power. And when things recover, it'll be interesting to see what happens to them. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's almost uh, 1 o'clock Eastern Time, and we have reached the end of our roundtable. I want to thank you all so much 